All right, we have uh, two scriptures to read this morning before Monty uh, preaches, uh, brings us a, a message here, preaches for us. The first one is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then at the other end of your Bible in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. There will be no need of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Good morning, everybody. Everybody hear me okay on Zoom? One more time. Sunglasses, good. I see Maxine's thumb up. That's a good sign. Good morning. We're, uh, glorious weather. Praise God for this weather. Now this Days like this make me want to like do our assembly outside forever. Like Okay. Um, so today I want to talk about uh, work. On average, Americans spend 50% of their waking hours, the time that you're actually not sleeping, 50% of that, on average, you spend working. Your particular percentage may be more or less. I'm sure Daniel Fox's is more than that last few years. And, and you know, it'll change over time. You might have had a period where you worked a ton and then periods where it's less. But on average, for most people, Work takes up the largest chunk of our time. Um, most of life is work. I mean, that's just math. Christians are people who follow Jesus, whose lives are presumably defined by their worship of Jesus. But Christians are still people. They're people who follow Jesus. And so, since they're people, work occupies the lion's share of, of our time as Christians as well. So it would be really unfortunate, weird even, if this activity that God made, a core part of our existence, a core part of who we are, had nothing to do with worship. Wouldn't that be odd? A weird way for God to design us, like make us so that we have to work most of the time we're awake to live. He wired us that way. And then to say the ultimate thing you could possibly do is worship me, and yet the two have nothing to do with each other? Miroslav Volf is a, a theologian, and he said this about this, uh, this interesting fact. And the fact that many Christians throughout the ages have had very little theological thought about their work. It seems to be just sort of offline. It's a different sphere. Like you can divide yourself into these two uh, you know, hermetically sealed realms. He says this, Amazingly little theological reflection has taken place in the past 
about an activity which takes up so much of our time. The number of pages theologians have devoted to the doctrine of transubstantiation, which does or does not take place on Sunday. For instance, would, I suspect, far exceed the number of pages devoted to work that definitely fills our lives Monday through Saturday. That's a really good way to put that. It would be tragic if we had no biblical framework for understanding this activity that requires most of our time. And the fact is, work and worship are related. They're very much related. You may remember from last week's sermon, I used Colossians 3, 23-24. And it says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, or as unto the Lord, and not to men. You are serving the Lord Christ. Those are worship verbs. But the context here is work. Work in a way that reflects that you know that your real audience is God. This is unto the Lord. This is for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. So our work should be, there's a sense in which we should think of our work as worship. It, It is one kind of worship if it's done unto the Lord. Now, Notice I did not say work is the object of our worship. The object of our worship is God alone, not our work. And I think that's a significant problem because many Christians, you know, maybe not on paper, but functionally, day in, day out, do worship their work. They worship their career. They worship their, they get their identity and their joy from their professional achievements. There's going to be more on that next week, Lord willing. But at the opposite end of the spectrum, Lots of other folks, Christians or not, find the idea of of worshiping work to be absolutely ludicrous, like as if. Worship work, I want to get as far away from it as I can. Um, They find work unfulfilling or frustrating or ultimately vain. And either of these extreme differences, these two different perspectives can keep work from being what it's supposed to be for us. And the reason why work can feel both so fulfilling and so futile are found in the Bible's very beginning. Both of you, I'm sure all of us have had that experience where your work is just rocking, it just feels so fulfilling. It's a calling, a vocation, etymologically, is a calling, right? At other times, you're like, what am I doing? This is going nowhere. And even if it were going somewhere, I don't care about it. I remember when I was a sales rep for a computer company, no offense to sales reps, I I depend on you. I buy things from you to live. Um, And a good sales rep is an impressive set of skills. It wasn't really for me. And that's what I did after college. We were first married before, well, first I changed truck tires, which is a whole other thing. Um, That was a great fit, Uh, semi-truck tires and money. Um, but then the, the, the sales thing, I, I remember telling Sheree, I'd, I'd come in from a sales call. I had, I had all the lawyers in downtown Tampa. It's called a vertical territory. It literally was vertical in the sense that I was in one building all day long often. And I would just be sitting there interviewing them about the way their work worked and their processes and all of that. And I was thinking about our system and how it could fit. And the whole time, if you could have a thought bubble over my head, like words were coming out of my mouth to the lawyer. But in my thought bubble, it was honestly saying, I do not care what your answer is. I don't care whether you buy this. I hate this too. I wish I weren't here too. But you got to pay bills. 
You've probably experienced work like that and then work that is so incredibly fulfilling it borders on becoming an idol. Both of those extreme perspectives on work resonate with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We find elements of that already at the very beginning of the Bible. So first of all, work as God intended it. We see this in creation. Work was built into God's original design for humans. The original design. There's a common misconception out there, and I hear this among Christians all the time. I thought this for years and years and years to you kind of read the text a little more closely. And that misconception is this, that work was really the consequence of the fall. That we were just sort of lying around on hammocks, right? With, with people fanning us or something. You know, Adam and Eve were just, it's, and, and then all, they sinned, and now they got to work. That's actually not what the text says. Not even close to that. Um, instead, what it says is that God created humans with work as a part of their original, it's baked in. It's, it's part of their identity, part of their, um, you know, what, what constitutes being human. And this is clear at least three different times in the first few chapters of Genesis. So, for instance, in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Anybody remember for what purpose? To work it and keep it. Or yeah, different verbs, different versions, but it's the idea of working it. He, he put him there to work it. He's created to work, for work. And, of course, he, he's also told, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But this gives him a commission, puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That's not presented in the text as a problem, as a consequence of sin. It's presented as a blessing, right? He's, he's tending a garden that is beautiful, that meets all of his needs, for food, for nutrition, for joy, for you know, aesthetic value, all of those things. They were beautiful to look upon, it even says. So that's a blessing, not a burden. Now, it is true that he's warned that things can go awry if he and Eve do not honor God's one rule. But work is presented as a good thing, part of the paradise that was Eden. Moreover, a chapter earlier, back in Genesis 1, in the first of the two you know, creation accounts, because um, it comes at it from two different angles in chapter 1 and 2. In chapter 1, work is connected with the very nature of humans as God created them. So if I were to ask you right now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? That's language that comes out of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that Nick just read for us. The very first thing said about humans in all the Bible. We're made in the image of God. What does that mean? We could, we could speculate and come up with lists a mile long, the value of human life and all this stuff, which would all be true. None of those, though, are the one in the text. The one in the text connects being made in God's image to vocation. Namely, the work of reigning over the rest of creation. Let me read it again. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Dropping down to 27. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Very next thought, not even a different thought, just a continuation. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The NIV says rule. The NLT says reign. All of those are perfectly fine translations, of course. Have dominion or reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So 
being made in the image of God in Genesis 1 actually is connected to our dominion or reign over the rest of creation. That kind of makes sense. Because ultimately, whose job is it to rule over all creation? Daniel, it's okay for people to talk, right? Whose job? Who rules over creation? God. That's ultimately his job. So it's kind of no wonder that the text would say that if we're, being, if we're made in God's image, if we're reflections of God, if we're little God-stamped creatures walking around on earth, that this would entail the same kind of work God does. If he reigns and I'm made in his image, well, voila, I reign. That's what he's saying here. You're made in my image, reign over everything with me. Co-reigners, co-rulers, joint dominion. God invites us to share that role of his with us. In fact, God designed creation so as not to be quite finished. We might say, without human work. Have you noticed this before? Genesis 2 Verses 4 through 5, and the Genesis 2 account is very different from the Genesis 1 account, even the order of creation. When people get all literal about Genesis 1's order and all that, you know, this is a literal scientific statement. I often want to go, just read chapter 2 and square that with it. Because it's not, uh, it's not trying to say you know, some kind of literal script about uh, that, or Genesis 2 is a contradiction of it, graphically. Here's what Genesis 2 says, and I want you to notice how creation depends upon the work of humans to even be finished. These are the generations, Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth uh, and the heavens. Of course, in Genesis 1, it's made in six days. In Genesis 2, it's made in a day. When, notice this, no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Why? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. That's reason one. And reason two, there was no man, no human to work the ground. Notice this, Genesis 2, 4 says this. There is no bush of the field or small plant of the field without the man to work the ground. Genesis 2's account shows creation is perfect in the sense it's everything God wanted it to be, but it's not perfect in the sense of being complete. He left it unfinished, waiting his co-reign, his co-regent, his co-ruler, the one who would reign with him, to finish it. Jeff Van Duzer, in one of my favorite little books, it's called Why Business Matters to God. It may be the worst title book in the world. It does apply to business, but it applies to work in general. And it so embeds the purpose of work in the creation, new creation arc of the Bible story. I would advise anybody who works to buy that book. I know I've quoted it here many times. But I know John Duras has it and likes it as well. Here's what he says about all this. This is Jeff Van Duzer. He, he, he's a I think teaches at a Christian college in, on the West Coast someplace. He's a, it teaches business. But this book's all about values and ethics and things like that. But it's very concrete, too. It goes from the story down to the practical application. He says this, The garden was created as a perfectly balanced and restored starting point. As originally designed, however, the Garden of Eden was not God's intended end point. God anticipated moving on from the perfection of the garden, relying, at least in part, on the activity of the men and women who God had placed in the garden. They would till the fields, Genesis 2-4. They would gather the fruit, Genesis 1. They would understand, organize, and classify aspects of the created order. Remember Adam naming everything, right? So you get basically, well, they would do, they would do all those things. They would be fruitful, 
In other words, God anticipated partnering with human beings to cause the Garden of Eden to flourish. Of course, God could have chosen to provide for the world only supernaturally. Every morning, for example, God could have dropped manna flakes from heaven, and our responsibility would have been limited to running around with our mouths open and our tongues out. Going to work, honey. Did you have a good day? Is, it, is that how your day felt yesterday? Have you ever had a day that easy? That is not how God did that. At the beginning, God didn't deliver a finished product. Rather, God provided a setting in which human beings, working with and enabled by God, could cause the created order to flourish. But this beautiful plan for our work, for our vocation, began to unravel, began to unravel when sin entered the picture. Fulfillment in our work turns to frustration, even futility in work. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is that ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to that ground. Can anybody relate? Thorns, thistles, sweat. Ever feel like the world of your work is just cursed? There are resonances of Adam and Eve's fateful sin in every generation since then, in every life since then. Like they, we still have to work. And sometimes it approximates joy. But keep on going, and it won't be very long before we experience the curse. Now work is sin-stained. It's warped. It's distorted. As in the myth of Sisyphus, we roll the rock uphill every day, only to find the next day we have to do it all over again. There's the rock again, the bottom of the hill. And if we map that experience that we all know too well, Onto the language of Genesis 1, we have to admit this hardly feels like ruling, does it? Man, I ruled today, did you? I got ruled. That, that doesn't feel like reigning or having dominion over much of anything. So if you've ever felt a certain futility or vanity to work, man, you've got, you've got my sympathy. And, and by the way, you've got the sympathy of a pretty wise writer who penned these words. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It is all vanity and striving after wind. It's telling that no chamber of commerce or high school business class has a quote from Ecclesiastes. You know, that would make a teenager go like, what's the point? That's part of life too. But the biblical storyline doesn't leave us there thankfully. It doesn't leave us stranded in that futility. It points us and our work to a redemptive future. It does so with God's promise of new creation in Jesus Christ. So in Revelation 21 and 22, we get this, we get to peer into the vision John is having of this heart-stirring uh, picture of, of the consummation of God's restorative plan, a new heavens and new earth, he calls it. 
with God's holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending into this renewed world, renewed world which is now free of the curse of sin. All of that is in the text of Revelation 21 and 22. And John describes this new creation at length, a tree of life, a river of life, freedom from mourning and pain and dying. God himself and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, present with humanity, dwelling with us forever, indeed illuminating that whole world with their own glory. Wow. Then at the end of this portrait, John says something astounding, which evokes that very first statement in the whole Bible about humans and their work. And this is Revelation 22, verse 5. Revelation 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. They, that is us, Christians, will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You put those lenses on of us reigning with God forever, and they begin to pop off the pages of the rest of the New Testament, because it's all over the place. Hints of that, overt statements of that. We've, I, I've read that with a filter that filtered those out for years and years and years, because my idea was heaven just is, well, I didn't know what it was. It just wasn't hell. There was life after death, but as N.T. Wright asked, do we believe in life after life after death? Or are we just not in hell? And in some vague sense, we're with God, but that's really not, it's not just a negation of the negative in Revelation 21 and 22. There's a whole lot going on. There's a lot of positive things going on, right? And we can debate till the cows come home whether it's literal or figurative, but you can do that with any of the language in the Bible. We at least ought to take the language seriously. The language is there for a reason. So, in new creation, it says in Revelation 22:5, near the very last thing said in the Bible, and I think it's the last thing said about human beings or in this vision of John, or maybe the next to the last, something like that, ultimate or penultimate statement about what we're involved in. And what he says is we continue to reign forever. And so when you picture eternity, when I picture eternity, do we picture anything beyond not being in hell or that in some sense we're just with God? I mean, according to the text, work is still going on. Don't let that bum you out. This is not soul-crushing, meaningless, frustrating work. This is not anxiety-inducing work. There will be no more pain or mourning or sadness. But it is a vocation, a calling, nonetheless. The new creation will be the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom if it's not the reign of God? That's what that means. The kingdom is the domain where the king has sway. Holds sway, reigns. So to talk about the kingdom of God, in fact, some English versions just translate the word kingdom of God in Matthew, reign of God. That's the basic idea. The dominion of God. So the new creation is the ultimate manifestation of God's reign, his kingdom. But here's the deal. He invites us to reign with him. Is reigning the same thing as inactivity? What, what leader just sits around doing nothing? God reigns right now. Is God doing nothing? No, God's doing this. 
God's doing stuff. He's feeding the, the, the animals on a thousand, the cows on a thousand hills are his. You know, the young lions are getting their food from him. He's causing the water cycle. Just read the creation Psalms. God's doing so many things. It's mind-numbing. It's mind-blowing. Reigning is not just lying there. And we're told we're going to reign. Indeed, there's another text on the new creation, a prophecy of it back in one of the classic ones that, 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 Isaiah, that Revelation picks the language of, uh, picks up the language of, and that's Isaiah 65. I want you to notice all the work words in Isaiah 65. Here's what he says. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. That's exactly what John sees at the consummation of everything in Revelation 21 and 22. Isaiah 65 says this in verse 17. I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever. Behold, I create Jerusalem. So it's the new Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Verse 21, notice these words. They shall build houses. How many sermons you hear about that? Can't wait to get to heaven and build houses. What it says. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not labor in vain. I've known several people who once they retire, don't find retirement to be anything like they'd hoped. They kind of lose their identity. I read a thing the other day by a 104-year-old Japanese, retired Japanese doctor. He retired not too long, 104. And they were asking him what his secret was. And he, you know, he said, I don't know, probably his genes. But he, he said, I... Uh, he had two or three things. He said, I, 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 I always take the stairs and I, I walk two stairs every time, not one. There you go. Um, but another thing he said in all seriousness was, don't retire. Like this idea in the modern West that people retire at, at you know, 63 or 65 and then they're just sort of done is a really modern idea. And of course you might retire from what you were doing, but if you just stop and you're not doing anything, you're, you're ceasing to be human, according to Genesis 1. Now, you may alter what you do. You may not have the capacity for this or that or the other. And, and I have to say that a lot of the people I've known who are most fulfilled in retirement tell me that they are busier than they've ever been. So we shouldn't look as, at work as this curse. Broken, sin-stained work is a curse. Work, what we do most of the time by God's design, should be something else for people who are living out of the narrative of God's coming kingdom, his coming new creation. Here's what Jesus said. So I want to, just for a second or two now, address this question. How does that future reality, reigning forever with God in a new creation, how does that impact our present? Well, Jesus said we're to live now as if that future kingdom, that future reign, were already here. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said we're to pray this way. Lord, your kingdom, your reign, come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it is a prayer and it is a purpose for us. The prayer ought to reflect the reality of our heart that we're trying to the best of our you know, broken ability to instantiate, to make real now the rule of God that one day will be universal. Every tongue will confess the lordship of Jesus. There won't be any rebels, any renegades. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow to Jesus. He will be the Lord. But we're praying and living as if now his kingdom has come. 
It hasn't in the fullest sense. It has in one sense, hasn't in the fullest sense. But he says, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does that look like when it comes to our work? Well, I believe that says that Christians should see our work differently. Rather than the typical idea that, you know, I may be a good guy and I go to church when, I'm, when the doors are open and I, I pray before my meals and I avoid three or four really bad sins the preacher talked about, pretty much my work is self-oriented. It's about me and my nuclear family. It's about us getting a lot of stuff and getting ever more security. You're not really secure ever. And the stuff is not going to fulfill you. Go to Guardian Angel or play it against sports. Sheree asked me like three days ago, do you want these skis? I'm like, no, I, they're old timey. I, I rent different ones anyway. So that anybody wants some toothpick skis that are solid? I'll give them to you. Um, you know, there's so many things. We just like accrue and then that'll get me happiness. That's my identity. None of it works. That's how the world looks at work. We should think of work differently because we worship God. It's not self-oriented. It exhibits the kingdom ethic. What is the central truth of living in the kingdom? What did Jesus say? Out in the Gentile world, people lorded over each other. How many, how many people can I you know, get above? Not so shall it be among you. In the kingdom of God, it is the greatest one is the one who serves the most people, loves the most people. And so how many of us look at our work or our business as I'm basically here to serve my community? God will take care of me in that. It'll make an income. I'm serving my employees. I'm trying to give them meaningful, creative work that honors how God designed them. I care about the world around me and what I do is impact on that because it's all a web. This isn't just a backdrop for me. That's a different view of work, a radically different view of work. I understand that God's kingdom has not come in the fullest sense. We won't realize the, the consummated version of that until eternity. But our work here reflects our belief that it is already broken in onto this sin-struck world. And it did so with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, 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 four, the, the, the first fruits, the down payment of new creation. Death could not hold him as it will not hold us or this whole world. The works of which will melt with fervent heat. One more reason why we should have a different perspective on work. This is a little more speculative, but I would say it this way. There is a strong possibility that there is some degree of continuity between this world and the next. There's a lot of hints at that. Some of them are a little stronger than hints in the Bible. I understand 1 Peter 2 or 2 Peter talks about, um, you know, the, the elements will melt with fervent heat. And one translation of that sounds like it's all going to be gone, like annihilated. That's actually a mistranslation of it. We've talked about I'm not going to go into that right now. It's really the idea of it's erasing the, the, the judging everything that's evil. But even in that passage, he says, we await a new heavens and new earth. It's not a state, statement against materiality like we've often assumed it is. Poof, everything's gone now. You're a disembodied spirit. No, we're awaiting a new heavens, even in that passage. What do I mean by continuity between this realm and the next? Well, doesn't the bodily resurrection of Jesus suggest that? We're told that his resurrection is like the one we're going to have. First Corinthians 15 makes that point explicitly. He's the first fruits of our resurrection. What's his resurrected body like? Well, it's not just the same old, same old. 
on the one hand, right? Because he walks through a wall. Anybody want to try that? Other than Biba right now? Um, it's not that, but on the other hand, you could still see the marks of, of what had happened, right? He, he eats fish. So it's, it's a third thing. It's what Paul calls, almost like he's grasping for a term, it's not the same old kind of body, but it is still a body. He avoids just a spirit. He's, Jesus says, look, does a ghost, does a spirit have flesh and blood? This is a post-resurrection body that he's taking to the right hand of God. And Paul calls him a spiritual body. It's like this third category. The ultimate kind of body we will all ultimately have. Where things don't, you know, things like entropy uh, apparently don't work anymore. It's, it's a different cosmos. It's a new heavens and new earth. That's cosmic language, the same kind as Genesis 1, only with the word new. Why do you need a body anyway? If there's not some continuity. And if you can see Jesus' marks in the resurrected body, doesn't that suggest some things kind of go over to the other side? And there's that, that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 3, which says, you know, whatever we're building, as long as it we're building vis-a-vis for, for, -vis the church, you know, the gospel, whatever we're building, as long as it's built upon the foundation of Jesus and what the apostles laid, this is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. He says, some people, you know, build, their, build upon it with gold or silver or precious stones or even wood, hay, and straw. And he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, the apostolic foundation of the church, survives, you ever notice that? He says, some people's work won't because the judgment's coming, but some of it will survive. That's interesting. Revelation 21, 24 talks about the kings of the earth bringing their splendor, their glory, their products, their wares to the new Jerusalem and laying them at the, 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 feet, uh, the, the throne of the Lamb. And when you go back to Isaiah 60, that that's quoting, it mentions all kinds of present-day nations. Midian, Kedar, Tarshish, Lebanon, Naboth, all these places. And that's what Revelation says. Those kings are going to be bringing this stuff. I don't know what all that means. I'm just saying, if you have this idea that everything you do and work here doesn't matter and isn't lasting past your death, there are a lot of Bible passages that at least suggest otherwise. There may be some continuity. All right, let me close, close with this quote from a guy named Leslie Newbigin, who wrote a book called Foolishness to the Greeks. He says, we can commit ourselves, we Christians can commit ourselves without reserve to all the secular work our shared humanity requires of us, knowing that nothing we do in itself is good enough to form part of New Jerusalem's building, knowing that everything from our most secret prayers to our most public political acts is part of that sin-stained human nature that must go down into the valley of death and judgment. And yet, knowing that as we offer it up to the Father, in the name of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is safe with Him, and purged by fire, it will find its place in the holy city at the end. Work and worship are slightly connected, wouldn't you say? They're inextricable. Let's work like nobody else works. It's not perfect. We're not going to get our fulfillment from it. It's not our God. We'll talk more about that next week, how it can sort of go against worship. 
but let's at least honor the fact that God gave this as a gift and that in his redemptive hands, if not now, one day um, we will see his great wisdom and praise him for it. Thanks a lot for your attention.